I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. disease advocates, because of their disease's small population of patients, can find it challenging to muster the interest of researchers and drug developers to invest the money, time, and energy needed to discover and develop a therapeutic. One solution is to drive collaborations to leverage the limited resources of foundations and researchers and advance their efforts to a point where a drug company may be willing to take over development. Support of accelerated research for Neiman PIC-C, or SOAR-NPC, represents such a model. We spoke to Kristen Davidson, a researcher and project manager for SOAR-NPC, about the organization's approach, how it's tackled various preclinical challenges common to rare diseases, and why the success it has enjoyed should be replicated by others. Kristen, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. We're going to talk about Neiman Pick Type C disease, the work of SOAR NPC, and why this innovative research model might be used to advance the effort to develop therapies for other rare diseases. Before we talk about the specifics of SOAR NPC and Neiman Pick disease, though, perhaps you can begin with the problem rare disease patients face broadly in terms of garnering the attention of researchers and, and drug companies? Um, I think you hit the nail on the head. Honestly, with rare diseases, you have such a small population for each of these individual diseases that it's often very difficult to gain the interest of pharma companies, um, sometimes even of researchers, although there are many researchers who do focus on specific rare diseases. Um, but I think for the for the rare disease population, it's just really difficult to get people interested in it because it affects such a small number of people. I do want to point out, though, that if you consider all rare diseases together, it's actually equivalent to about 1 in 6,000, affecting 1 in 6,000 people. So it's really not that rare. It's just that each individual disease is very rare. What is Neiman Pick type? C disease, how rare is it? What what do we know about its progression and prognosis and, and what treatments, if any, exist today? So Neiman Pick Type C or NPC, which I'll commonly refer to it, um, is a genetic disorder. It affects about one in a hundred thousand people. Uh, the estimates might actually be a little bit lower in that it affects more people. Uh, and that would be because there's probably a lot of adult cases that go undiagnosed. Um, so we're still working on sorting that out. Um, in terms of the prognosis, patients are typically, uh, this is very typical but not absolute because there is a very large range um, within the NPC population. But normally children would be diagnosed, say, you know, early childhood, like between three and six or seven years old. Um, those patients typically survive to their maybe early to late teens. Um, there are also adult onset cases, though, and so, you know, people who are in their 30s or 40s might have MPC, 
but it'll present a little differently in terms of it. It would be more like a, a mental disturbance, like schizophrenia or something like that. Um, MPC is a fatal disease, and the cause of it is actually a defect in one of two different proteins, either MPC1 or MPC2. And both of these proteins are believed to be involved in cholesterol transport within the cell. And when you lose function of one of these proteins, you basically have um, an accumulation of cholesterol within all different cell types. It's particularly prominent within the central nervous system. And so patients experience, you know, a progressive decline in intellectual function, in their ability to walk and talk, um, to just get around. So it is a progressive disease, and it's extremely hard on the parents who have to watch their children get worse and worse over the years. What is sore NPC, and, and how did it come about? How does it uh, address the problem rare diseases face in, in mustering the need needed attention and, and resources to develop therapies? So sore NPC is actually a collaborative group of scientists and families um, that have family foundations to support NPC research. Uh, it was started in about, the idea was brought about in 2007. It actually took shape in 2008, and the parents started funding some of the research in 2008. And I think what makes SOAR unique and super helpful for the NPC community is that, you know, we have a very open collaboration among the scientists that are in SOAR NPC. So there's four of us, myself, and then three other senior investigators. So we very openly share all of the data that's coming from the labs on the NPC work. In return, we also openly share that data with the families. So they're kept abreast of what's going on in terms of research. And we found that by using this very open, you know, like open collaboration and discussion, that we're able to very expeditiously move compounds through a drug pipeline and evaluate whether or not they're, you know, if they look promising, we continue forward with it. If they hit a no-go milestone, we table that and move on to the next compound. So this has allowed us to rather effectively go through many different compounds um, and pick out those that seem to be most promising. There was a, a piece in the Orphanet Journal of Rare Disease you co-authored about sore NPC. There's an org chart that's quite different than what someone might expect to see in an org chart, rather than a, a, a top-down organizational structure. Sword PC stands at the center with a, a variety of other entities orbiting around it and, and connecting through it. How does Soar NPC work? So I, I want to point out first that, yes, while the article is about Soar, the global picture is actually a very collaborative one. And so SOAR and BC, while we collaborate amongst ourselves, the scientists and the families, we have a very extensive network of um, collaborators that we work with outside of the direct SOAR and BC. And so um, what we do is we, you know, we find projects or compounds that we're interested in. Um, if we don't have the expertise to test, you know, in cell culture or in the mouse model or something, we will go to an outside expert. Um, and then we'll, we'll basically you know, select people that are, they don't even have to be within the field. It's just that they're an expert in whatever we happen to be looking at and see if we can get them involved. And so, you know, through SOAR NPC with the Arpersiga Medical Research Foundation, which is another family organization, um, and other, you know, other family foundations, we've just been able to really come together and go through a lot of different compounds. So, 
in terms of how it's how it's actually working, I guess you can say that the the four scientists have calls every two weeks. The families and I have calls every two weeks to keep everybody updated. And then about four times a year, we have a big group meeting where all of us try to get together in person and discuss the project, um, the progress of the different projects, trying to see which ones are most fruitful and continue down those avenues. There are a number of common challenges in the discovery phase of a rare disease therapeutic regardless of, of which disease we're talking about. I wanted to walk through some of those and have you explain to, to what extent these were issues in the work of Sorin PC and, and how they were addressed. One of the first things researchers hope to do with a, a genetic disease is identify the gene involved. Is this a, a monogenic disease and, and how is the gene identified? So this is a monogenic disease. Um, as I mentioned, it's a defect in one of two different genes, although they do lead to the same um, disease phenotype, the clinical phenotype and pathology. Um, this was actually identified through work at NIH, and a lot of this was supported by the Carthagian Medical Research Foundation. Um, so they, I think in the late 80s, actually um, discovered the gene that causes NPC, or the genes, I'm sorry. When you, you have a an identified gene, one of the things you could then do is is develop animal models. Why do animal models matter, and how did you go about identifying or establishing an animal model for the, the disease? So animal models are absolutely crucial, I think, to a lot of the therapy work that um, most of these rare diseases need. Um, the MPC-1 mouse model was actually a spontaneous mutation that was first discovered um, at NIH, they, they characterized it and figured out that it was a defect in the NPC1 gene. Um, we also have a, a cat model, a feline model, which is, again, a spontaneous mutation. Um, I believe that was discovered in California with a veterinarian who then spoke with a, um, an investigator at Colorado State University where a, a colony was established. And since then, we actually have several additional mouse models that have come about through targeted mutations, um, genetic manipulations. And so we have, I think, about five mouse models and the feline model. And again, these have proved invaluable for getting the therapeutic treatments moved forward and addressing, you know, how well they actually work, what they're, what pathologies they're affecting, and how it affects the disease course. In the case of a, a rare disease, the, the progress of a disease is often not well understood. And and the variations in the way it manifests itself from patient to patient, the phenotypic heterogeneity, as it were, it, it's important to understand what has been done with regards to a natural history study and what impact has that made? Again, you're hitting like all the perfect questions. Um, early on, and, and I say early on as in 2006, I believe, um, there was an investigator, Dr. Forbes Porter at NIH, who started a natural history study for NPC disease. And this, again, proved absolutely critical for evaluating different therapies that are currently in clinical trial and understanding the actual progression, the normal progression of the disease. So they did a lot of work and have, I want to say, more than 160 patients that have been characterized, many of them retrospectively. And they have a very, very good idea of the clinical progression of disease um, 
they, they have a, they developed a neurological severity score, and they're able to use this as one of the criteria to evaluate how um, how a treatment is impacting the a patient. So it's you know this is really important, and I think without the natural history study, we would not be where we are today in terms of knowing about the disease and being able to potentially treat it. Biomarkers represent another challenge. Can, can you explain what a biomarker is and why they matter with regards to rare diseases and, and what progress has been made in, in regards to validating a biomarker for NPC? So biomarkers are very important because they represent a way to measure the effects of a treatment or to measure the progress of disease. Um, but it's a surrogate marker. So this is something, for instance, Dan Ori has been working on oxysterols um, as a biomarker for NPC disease. So um, one of them that he looks at is 24-hydroxycholesterol. And this is something that's produced largely by neurons in the brain. And so the, the main production is occurring in the brain. So if you measure this and you see a spike in 24-hydroxycholesterol, you know that you're having an effect. Um, an effect that treatment is. So this has also been critical in terms of, you know, just understanding the disease progression and having a way to measure. Um, a lot of these diseases, and especially with MPC, there's not a really easy way. And MPC disease is not an enzyme deficiency. So we cannot go in and measure and say, okay, we have X amount of enzyme. When we treat, we have now this amount of enzyme. We can't do that. We have a transmembrane protein or a soluble protein that we can't measure. And so the biomarkers have been critical in terms of evaluating different therapies and the natural progression. How about biomaterials from patients with the disease? What, what kind of things would researchers ideally like to have access to and, and how difficult are they to get? What, what, if anything, have you been able to do in, in this area? Um, in terms of biomaterials, I think the families, the majority of families with NPC patients are extremely willing to, you know, provide biomaterials um, that will help to better understand the disease, to track the progression and whatnot. Um, some of the ones that I know about offhand, you know, there's urine, um, they collect blood, CSF specimens if, uh, if the treatment is given lumbar puncture, which one of them is. Um, they sometimes do cultured fibroblasts, um, and that's partly as a way to diagnose the disease oftentimes. Um, it's becoming less critical because they're, we're doing some newborn drug screening that may, in fact, replace that and get rid of the need to do the, the fibroblasts. Um, so the, you know, the families have been very forthcoming in, in what's needed to evaluate, um, with the different biospecimens. The the obvious other piece that's needed really for all of this to rest upon are getting access to patients, particularly as you move towards a clinical trial. Have you done anything to to build patient registries or, or connect with patients in other ways? So there uh, there's an organization called National Neiman Pick Disease Foundation, and they have a patient registry. Um, as you mentioned, it's critical to have the patients so that we can, you know, if we have therapies, that we can actually test these in the patients who need it. Um, so a lot of, I think a lot of it actually comes from word of mouth 
And when people receive an MPC diagnosis, they look online and there's usually a few family foundations or information that pops up. Um, and a lot of genetic counselors, I think, are, are usually pretty good about directing families where to go. I know the NIH is one obvious place um, that, you know, a lot of people are directed to. And now that we have a clinical trial, I think it's even easier for families who are newly diagnosed to readily get some information about the disease because you type it in and that's one of the first things that pops up. So. There have been a, a few other models of this type of collaborative approach to accelerate drug discovery and development. One thing that's notable in this is, is data sharing, which I, I think particularly for older researchers can be a bit of a, a cultural barrier. What requirements do you have with regards to data sharing and, and how do you foster that? Has it been any kind of an adjustment or, or barrier for participants? Um, you know, that's a very, very good point. And that was one of the, the items that we often talk about. A lot of science, and I think it is starting to change, but a lot of science um, is somewhat de-incentivizing in terms of collaboration. And so I think as scientists, we all know that we want, in order to get funding, that we need a good, we need good data published in a very high impact journal that carries a lot of weight you're going to be more likely to get funding. So this does not necessarily breed a culture for collaboration. Um, what Thor has done is sort of take that away. So the family foundations, while they're not providing all of the support for the three different labs, they are providing a substantial amount of, of support for each lab. And then what they ask the scientists to do is very openly share this, the data that they're, they're garnering. Um, you know, it, it's it doesn't fit with every scientist, that's certain, but the three and myself four that we have included, I think it works very well with. So I think for other rare disease organizations or other rare diseases that are trying to come up with this, you really have to find a good match of scientists who are willing to work in a collaborative um, spirit. And, you know, you may, you may go through a few different scientists finding out that they're not really keen on, on working in that type of environment, which is totally fine. But I think we've found a very good mix in terms of the families and the scientists and all being able to work together. I think one of the, the main reasons that it's so successful is, you know, that like I was saying, the, the money is not solely based on NIH-funded grant support. And so when the families can help out providing that extra um, grant money for the scientists, it relieves a little bit of the pressure to have to publish, you know, all this new novel data. And when you're working together, you can actually work more efficiently and get more information out there quicker. So I think that's one of the main reasons that it works. There is a, an experimental therapy in development. Can, can you briefly talk about how it was discovered and advanced and, and how a drug developer is now moving it forward? Absolutely. This is one of the most exciting um, things in the NPC community right now. And I think we're all very excited. So the drug that you're referring to is BTS270. Um, the lay term for that is hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin. That's and the lay term. <laughs> that, okay, sorry, that's scientific name, right? That's not a lay term. Um, this was actually discovered independently in a couple of different labs. And, you know, there was work done in, I forget the year, maybe the late 90s, looking at cyclodextrin, and I'll call it cyclodextrin for right now. 
looking at cyclodextrin at very low doses, and there wasn't a huge effect that was found. Um, several years later, in repeating some work and trying to combine um, two therapies, the lab that I was in, as well as another lab at UC Southwestern, found that the cyclodextrin had this absolutely amazing effect, and that the mice lived a lot longer, the pathology was less, you know, they were just looking really good. And so, we, you know, this data was shared at one of the Parsegian meetings, and shortly thereafter, Charles Beat, who has the um, feline colony at University of Pennsylvania, began working with the, with the hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin. And, and cyclodextrin is a sugar that's used in, in manufacturing other drugs, is that correct? Correct. Yeah, sorry, I should have explained what it is. So cyclodextrin is a cyclic sugar molecule. Um, it's commonly used as an excipient for many drugs. You can find it in things like Febreze. Um, it, it takes out, you know, cholesterol or other substances from food. You can find it in the cosmetic industry. It's very widely used, but it's never been used as a drug on and of its own accord. So this is the first time that cyclodextrin is being used to treat a disease. Um, How did a drug company get involved in taking it from, from the lab? So it wasn't as easy as one might have hoped. Um, we, you know, the phase one clinical trial was run at NIH, again, with Dr. Porter. And after getting some very promising data from the, the phase one trial, they opened it up to see, you know, there were discussions with different pharmaceutical companies, and one of them emerged um, the test, and they decided to take on cyclodextrin, the HPBCD, hydroxypropyl beta cyclodextrin, which they now call BTS270, and drive that towards commercialization. And so it's currently in a phase 2B3 trial right now. So it's in phase 3, and they just completed enrollment last week. Oh. So. When you, you look at the success of SOAR NPC, where, where do patient advocates fit, fit in where, in this kind of a, a collaborative model? Um, I would consider all of the Family Foundation patient advocates. So they're absolutely crucial to the success of our model. Um, they provide the driving force and the the need for speed, so to speak, <laughs> the desire to get things done quickly and efficiently so that we can help hopefully their children and any future kids with NPC disease. So I think they, they play a huge role. And, you know, to be honest with you, when I go to these meetings for the, the family meetings or when, it, when we get together for the, the SOAR meetings, it absolutely drives home the importance of this work when you see the kids and, unfortunately, when you see the progression of some of the kids. And it just tells you how incredibly sensitive time is and how, you know, how much we need to work on this. And it gives you a very strong reason for continuing. What would you say the opportunity for other rare disease groups are to, to replicate this model? What, what advice would you offer? I would say the first thing to do is probably to find a, a couple, at least two or three families who are interested in, you know, trying to make something like this work for their rare disease. Um, the people have to be pretty open to new ideas, to collaborating, and then to find experts within the field and approach those experts and ask them if they would be willing to, you know, try to test the model um, like what we have going. And again, this is not the only way, but we found that it's a very productive way. And I think, you know, in the fostering collaborations paper that was published, 
I think it provides a very nice blueprint for how we suggest going about this. So, you know, the main idea is to find the families that want to make this happen, and then for those families to look for the researchers who are willing to collaborate in an environment such as this. It may take a couple tries. You may hit it the first try. Kristen Davidson, Project Manager for SOAR NPC. Kristen, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.